Greetings, SE land. This is Twig. Anthony Twig Wheeler here with another episode of Twig's SE Reflections podcast. This is an audio archive created specifically for somatic experiencing students and practitioners everywhere and other helping care professionals that are out there working with the psychobiological literature, the new traumatology, somatic healing arts, and things of that nature. Hello there. I'm Twig, and I'm talking with you here in the COVID-19 times. Gotta keep it together, don't you know? It won't last forever, oh no. You got to keep it together, don't you know? It won't last forever, oh no. That's a little ditty I sing to myself. I've been doing that one for a couple years, and it's true. This one's not going to last forever either. Peter Levine has a fabulous line, it doesn't have to hurt forever. Is that what he says? It won't last forever? It doesn't have to hurt forever? Trauma is a fact of life, but it doesn't have to hurt forever. Ah, my friends, Twig here, episode 105, a long list of things you can do. Now, as practitioners, particularly those of us who do one-on-one work, meet with clients and uh, maybe groups, but we do that in person, in normal daily life, and there's tremendous value to that. Um, A little bit of awkwardness, scariness, coming into the room, talking with somebody who had to travel, um, had to arrange their day to come see you for a very specific hour. There's a a bunch of oddity to all of that. Um, At the same time, it's our work, it's our daily efforts, and it matters that we get to be in the same room with people. It matters that we get to feel their presence, that they get to feel our presence, that we get to look at the same things from slightly different angles, but we get to look at it together. Um, Meaning, if we look out the window, we can both look out the same window when we're in the same room. We can share facial expressions and pick up on the nuances of how our feet move and how we sit in our chairs and all of that in-person-ness of our in-person meetings and sessions that happen in daily life. They come along with interpersonal psychobiological cues and signals of notable value. Notable value that scientists and heavy thinkers and therapists and teachers of therapists think about and know about. I smile, you smile, mirroring social reflection. Oh, wow, goodness, I smile, you smile, and we turn up a bit of the prosocial ventral vagal influence with helping the facial muscles to move. That happens easily easier in person. Not that you smile with everybody. Not that everybody always needs a smile. However, as an example, it's a good one. Smiles. Okay. You and I both know that 
right now, all of that is curtailed. They're calling it social distancing. Makes sense. I'm going to go ahead and advocate for physical distancing, social connection. Physical distance has to happen right now. We understand the physics and the physicality, the science, the principles behind how the novel coronavirus is spreading amongst people and sharing space too close, aerosolizing and having droplets in our in the mist and um, spluum, splugium stuff that comes out of us. We don't want it to go to other people and we don't want to pick it up from other people because it could, unfortunately, could contain these micro, 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 micro small things that we call viruses, particular kind of virus. We all know this. So the physical distance property just has to happen. And subsequently, the vast majority of the world now, vast majority, more people than ever um, are staying at home. And you and I are too, as best we can, I imagine. And we're probably not meeting with people in person anymore. And suddenly some major heft, the weight in our toolbox is suddenly gone. Uh, I used to have a practice in Olympia, Washington that I shared with a dear somatic therapist, dear person who's passed now, Elizabeth Bowles. And she had a practice of making tea for every client as they arrived. I picked that up from her. I would do that. I would always enjoy doing that. It felt great to do that. It was part of the contract eventually. If you came to work with me at that office in Olympia over those years, part of the contract was as we came together, I was going to be brewing a little pot of hot water and making myself and you a cup of tea. And our session would always start with this warm handhold of a teacup. Makes me think of a line from Hugh Milne, who wrote The Heart of Listening and kind of cultivated the visionary cranial sacral therapy modality. Hugh Milne had a, had a line in The Heart of Listening, and he said, when you don't know what else to do, make tea. Ah, oh, we have temporarily put down one of our central guiding principles, the value of pro-social contact, the value of proximity, the importance of interpersonal relations and connecting, the critical, critical fill-in experiences, renegotiating experiences of having somebody else. This is kind of the practitioner-client situation. Having somebody else witness you in your feeling states and mirror them appropriately, not just wash them away and tell you, oh, you're going to be okay, or not tell you, no, it's not like that but to participate enough that says your feelings, your emotions, your way of experiencing yourself makes sense right now. And I'm going to be here 
and not just tolerate that experience with you, but I'm going to relate to it with you in some way, and I'm going to give you the accompaniment that will provide a, a reckoning, you know, a reckoning with things that you keep at bay, feelings that you keep at bay, acknowledgments, recognitions, but also just felt sense interpretation and incorporation of the nuance, the differentiation, the parts of your experience, rather than what often so typically happens for so many of us in our distress. We get fixated on the thing that bothers, the spot of bother, and miss all of the other cues. It's one of the wonderful things about somatic experiencing practitioners as they get adept at seeing, particularly soft seeing, their clients as person's talking and their body is speaking as we're sitting together and uh, the body that does not lie, the implicit memory and procedural memory instructions and expressions of behavior start, start to show themselves. And practitioners can see the change of breath and the change of tone and the musculature and the movements of preparatory action for self-protective responses, incomplete self-protective responses, and all of that, the seeing of a person and helping to call attention. Oh, wow, that's so interesting what you're saying. And as you say that, I'm so curious, do you happen to notice how your hand kind of gathers into a little ball right there, almost like it's making like a fist or something like that? Do you happen to notice that? And a lot of people, of course, don't notice those kinds of things. They're caught in the spot of bother and their attention reiterates and repeats on such things. And by having an SE practitioner in your presence, they can call out parts of your experience that you're not noticing. The, the differentiation that allows for pendulation to happen. And, oh, wow, it's so actually relieving to get to feel how when I'm talking about this, my hand actively makes a fist. And that if I let my hand feel how it makes a fist, something happens in my feeling state that says, oh, wow, I, um, I get a different signal perhaps even a relieving signal, especially if this is, in fact, the kind of instruction set or the related signals of an incomplete self-protective response that I've been able to bring attention to, probably because the SE practitioner helped me call attention to it or called attention to it and helped me bring my attention to it in a titrated, appropriate way that I'll be successful with turning my attention from the spot of bother, the thing I'm always talking or worrying about or paying attention to, to incorporating other things that are happening at the same time. That's a really helpful thing that, honestly, I never knew about until I learned about SE and ended up having help from seasoned folks who could do that for me. Notice when I was settling, notice when I was getting upset, notice when my body was trying to talk and listen to it, what it was trying to say. It's harder to do that when you're not in the same space with somebody. It's harder to see and reflect and pick up on, you know, how much can I get away with calling this person's attention to this and how can we do this in a small enough round and still have other things to do in the same space together so that we don't spend too much time trying to pay attention to this? Because for some, 
we do need to titrate such a thing. A really nuanced practitioner might notice the hand balling into something like a fist and simply do that themselves in their own hand and not consciously call attention to it for the client, at least not for now, but to mirror that instead as a passing kind of priming action, maybe to do call more attention to it on a third or fourth round of its expression. And on the first time or two of it showing, just to simply allow it to happen and give a little mirror neuron reflection of the practitioner doing the same motion with their hand. Easier. Oh, yes. I mean, you know it. So much easier to do that once you've learned how to do it and to do it in the same room with somebody else. We don't have that opportunity right now. A bunch of the context and conditions that allow us to do our work, particularly our work to help provide psychobiological signals that will allow people to become invested and involved in letting themselves feel their involuntary autonomic nervous system experience, particularly as it relates to survival responses and incomplete self-protective responses so that they can experience their life energy without being kind of confounded by self-protection. To get folks involved in that, you really need to cultivate a context and environment where you know people feel less inhibited, they don't feel quite as protective about themselves, they they don't feel judged but they also are seen. They're seen in a way that it's most people don't see. They're mirrored in a way that most of the world doesn't often mirror them. Take, for example, folks that are troubled, confounded oftentimes by the freeze and mobility response. They have a lot of dorsal vagal influence. They're going slower. They're essentially in a conservation state. They're organism is saying, oh, wow, the world is going too fast. I'm trying to catch up. And most of the world is going too fast for them. And rarely do people slow down to join up with their pace. In fact, there's a lot of demand. Come on, join us. We're, we're trying to go faster here, or, or at least we're not, we're not going as slow as you're going. And this conflict makes it so a lot of people who are burdened by freeze and mobility signals, they don't have an opportunity to participate with them, except perhaps when they're by themselves and they withdraw from everything else, in which case they're unlikely to notice the feeling states and the uh, kind of the psychophysiology states as they try to change. Leaning there on a comment that immobility, fortunately, is intended to be time-limited. So it has all of these attempts, these cycling attempts to come out of itself and move on to some other phase, usually a sympathetically influenced phase. And a lot of people, a lot of us, any of us, by ourselves are unlikely to notice those transitions. It's one of the great helpfulnesses of being with an SE practitioner who is willing to adjust their way of being enough so that the client gets to experience themselves for themselves without having to put on a mask or do some other kind of behavior. 
In that example, the therapist, the SE practitioner, would probably talk a bit slower and would give more time for that person who's slower, as it were, compared to other folks, burdened by the freeze, immobility kinds of behaviors, the practitioner would probably match up to that a bit, making it so that the client wouldn't feel pressed to be different than themselves and would instead start to receive at least the implicit message, oh, I can go at my own pace here, if not the explicit message of the practitioner saying, hey, look, we're going slower, let's just go slower. One doesn't need to do that as much as just join up with going at the pace of the client a bit more and finding out that that puts the person more in their ease. Now, it might be more in their ease of being less responsive, but easier at doing so, which often leads to some other kind of change, freezing mobility being time-limited. Rather than reinforcing the freeze by pushing against it, getting to participate or have the space that allows my state to be more itself, I get to notice what else could come. And having a practitioner there to notice, oh, wow, there's a little bit more energy in the speech right now. I'll, I'll bring up my energy to, to kind of reflect, oh, that's somewhere we can go. Or, oh, there's a little bit more social engagement or a little bit more eye contact now. Oh, I'll bring up my eye contact more and look out the window less and allow that change to be reflected, feed, get some feedback, support it, and grow. So we more or less could even secretly, just in hanging out with somebody, help their experience pendulate more. Easier to do. I mean, far, 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 far. Easier to do when we're in the same room and when we've gotten some experience with how to do it. Okay, so one of the primary things that we will all want to do while we're in this COVID-19 situation is we'll want to relate to reality. We will want to relate to reality. Somebody wants to pretend or think or imagine or insist that uh, COVID-19 is not a reality proposition, that it's kind of a made-up thing or it's an overreaction or whatnot. Well, you know, the way our biology works is that when our organisms encounter a quasi-alive, quasi-just-replicating piece of information like a virus, and our bodies are naive to it, and um, that gets into our bodies, it, it, it behaves just like reality. It does what it does. It reproduces itself, and that makes us sick. Some of us more so, some of us less so, some of us direly so in this case. And that's reality. And that reality isn't going to change because of how we wave our hands or what we hope for or what we insist upon. That reality needs us to relate to it. We need to wash our hands. We need to keep our physical distance. We need to decrease how many vectors or how many interactions we have with other people and other things that other people would have touched. So that when we 
miss washing our hands accurately or when we're not physically distant enough. We just don't have as many opportunities to catch this virus that none of us are prepared for and none of us want. You don't want it. Nobody wants it. We don't want it. It's not even something we're supposed to be having. We don't want it. And that's reality. And it comes along with all these other realities. Well, to do that, we need, we need all of these things in place. Some of us don't have them. It's just terrible. Some folks have as much space and as much water and as much soap to wash their hands and keep physical space and all of these things. And some folks just don't. And that, I mean, that's just a, it's just a terrible situation. It's always been a terrible situation that just gets compounded by something like this. And at the same time, you and I, somewhere here in the helping professions, particularly in the kind of like trauma healing modalities where so often it's kind of one-on-one kind of work, we have to relate to some of the reality that we've got going. All those things are true for us and almost none of us are seeing people in person. And if we are, we need to maintain that relationship with reality, maybe even more so if we're having people still come to our space or if we're going to other people's spaces. Just put in a parenthesis, go for a walk instead. In parentheses. So we could imagine that we've been de-skilled. We could worry, oh, I don't have my primary modality. I don't get to touch anymore, which honestly, that is a loss. I mean, it really is. If your work was based on actual physical touch, everybody came in and had a contract more or less to get on the table within a few minutes of entering, that's a challenge. That's an extra challenge. And it's just, I'm sorry to say this, it's part of your reality part of the reality of this situation and how it comes to bear on you and your work and what you can do for people and with people. And it's problematic in so many ways. Financial, um, you're, you're just, you did this all for a reason. This is your profession. You've studied on your weeknights and weekends. You've gone to trainings on Sunday. I mean, really, you're that into it. You go to a training on Sunday morning. It's like you've, you've invested in this. And it's true. Um, the reality of the situation has limited, for some of us, major parts of what we can do, some of us less so. There are some of you who were already doing online sessions. I've already been doing online consultations for several years. I've been on Zoom and Skype on a daily basis for a couple of years. So some of these things are are bigger deal and some of them less for some of us than others, but we're all kind of in this reality together. And let's come back to it. We have stepped away or had to step away from central features of our work. And it, it, there, couldn't, there couldn't be a word to, that would describe how painful that can be and how disorienting that can be. And on a very personal 
level for somebody like yourself, not just that you're caught up in this international pandemic, but just personally, it's like, well, that's a bummer. It wasn't your plan earlier this year. You were raging. You were going to classes. You were going to be in master classes. You were going to be in ultra beginner classes. You were going to take some master classes and then go back and have an ultra beginner class. Like you had plans. You had clients. They were increasing. People were starting to share your name. You just signed a lease on your office. My goodness. All of that, whoa, confronting, confounding. Okay, got the problem laid out. There are still tons, tons of things that you can do. There are so many things that you can do still for people, with people, on other people's behalf, on your behalf, on your family's behalf, on your friend's behalf, on your on your studies, on your future, on the clients that you haven't talked to for two years, on the clients that you were just working with who don't want to come in for touch. Even them. You can give them their, your, their space. You can write a newsletter to them. You can write individual emails. You can send particular images. And those are just simple little examples. In other words, you cannot lose contact. You can find, and this is always a challenge in person. What's the right amount of contact for this person? How much do we look at each other? How much does this person want to continuously look at me and to help them not quite not be quite so fixated? I need to look for opportunities where I can break the eye contact and look away, but then not have that last so long that it's overly distressing for them so that I'll look back on time before my looking away was a problem. But in inserting that tiny little pendulation of looking away, I don't reinforce that we just stay here and look at each other. Now, there are times when it's valuable to just stand there and look at each other. That's a whole different thing. On a typical basis, what I just reflected was that people have patterns and you're trying to expand their repertoire of behavior And that doesn't just come about by reinforcing their patterns, but by looking for their tolerance, their window of tolerance to explore spontaneity and otherness. And in that one example, we can see that if somebody's overly fixated on you, you might need to help not just call attention to that so directly. It could be embarrassing, it could be shaming, it's unnecessary. But to be in resonance and help to kind of massage and expand out what happens in this space together. It's always a question, how much contact? And it's, it's a question even more so now. You know, you're going to write your clients un, un, out of turn? They didn't write you, you're going to write them? Well, maybe... You're going to write them every day when they haven't asked for that or given any kind of feedback that you, they want that from you? Probably not. Because you're going to pay attention to the feedback. That's part of how you error correct to find the right amount of contact. You try something out 
you see how it goes and then you adjust. You answer the door in person in a session day coming in the future. You answer the door, they walk in, you say something a little gleeful, hello. You notice that their response isn't nearly so gleeful, hi. You adjust how you speak the rest of the next couple minutes. You don't stay in your glee and make some kind of difficulty for them. Should I be gleeful? I don't feel gleeful. Why are you? I'm coming to trauma therapy. Why are you being gleeful around me? I know you'd, you'd adjust your communication. You'd adjust your contact. We're at a distance right now. We might have to adjust our contact, but there are within whatever amount of contact we get to have, so many things we can do. So many things you can do. You know, I hate to say this, but you were trying to get people into their self-protective responses too quickly anyhow. I mean, not all of you, for sure. But I've been in this a little while, and I'm going to tell you, what you were doing in the training where you could just stop your your client, practitioner, friend, practice person, and you're in a triad and you're like, oh, your fist, it just made this, you just made this fist move. Like, well, you just feel your fist now as you're telling me about this moment and just stop telling me about it and feel your fist. And it turns amazing in the training. It's just like an intermediate three. Oh, it's just delicious. And person's like, my hand's on fire. It's amazing. It's on fire. Wow, I feel like cold chills coming through my body. Wow, I feel waves of warmth and chills and warmth. And wow, I want to look around. I feel so relieved. I didn't even realize I was so tense inside until I felt this relief. It goes really, really smooth. It's glorious. And you're, I don't know, it's too blanket to say this, but you're all trying to do that too fast out in the real world at least with folks that you haven't already prepared for that moment so that they will turn their attention to their hand. And if you don't prepare them first, you have to just be more sophisticated, far more sophisticated at not interrupting, but kind of transitioning the person's attention from what they were already focused on to this thing that has called your attention, the example, fist in their hand. So here's a learning time for you. COVID-19 has brought you a learning time. You don't get to see the person's whole body in a session anymore. You don't get to see their foot moving and say, oh, I see your foot moving and have them go, "Um, yeah, my wife hates it. But what about it anyway? My foot just likes to go. It goes like that all the time. Like you, you don't you don't get to see all of those nuances of movement and breath changes easily, and you know this and that. You don't get to look out the window together. It's true. All of those things are inhibitions or inhibited. They're challenges to your work. And I could almost think for a moment, at least in passing with you, that that might be helpful for you as a learning process. Because there are still so many things that you can do.
Now, in some way, all of that stuff is something of the gold standard. I mean, it's kind of something you're after. You are interested in noticing people's very inhibited, incomplete self-protective responses. That's a, that's a major goal. And you really are interested in being able to see it, see people's bodies express those things, otherwise pause or redirect attention from what was taking place that kind of stimulated or gave rise to or gave the impression or context for that incomplete procedural memory expression to show itself. You do want to call attention to those things. You do want to support an environment that allows people to pay attention to those things. You do want to see those things completed. And the relief on the backside of such experiences is dramatic and genuinely of its own. I mean, you hear people say things like, I don't know if I've ever felt this way before, or my legs are alive and tingling in a way that I can never remember, or I can't believe my neck moves this smoothly. It usually feels so crunchy and tense, but it's like my head just wants to move however it, however it does on its own. And after letting it do that, it feels so free and liberated. You do. It's, it's true. And it is easier. It is so much easier if you can see all those things, but it still doesn't work if you call attention to it in a poor way. If you call attention to it too quickly, if you're overly ambitious, or if you imagine that what you were doing in the training is supposed to work for everybody out in the real world. It might work for everybody in the real world if you help prepare it. But, you know, that fifth session that we were playing with in the example of an intermediate three session, that session doesn't happen at beginning one. And it's not just because you don't know what you're doing at beginning one. It's also because your client doesn't know what they're doing at beginning one. By intermediate three, it works like a charm. You know what you're doing. But so does your client in that context. So regardless of, I mean, it's true, COVID-19, major, major, major tragedy thing. It is. A major bummer on your personal uh, facility and capacity and opportunity to, quote, do the work. And no matter what, you still needed to learn. I mean, I don't know, you know, kick me, anybody who needs to. It's like, I know what I'm doing, and that's cool. I'm glad. It's cool. There's a lot of us that are like, just asking these questions, these SE questions. Kind of step into reality here with you guys for a moment. A lot of us, a lot of you and I, a lot of us. Fortunately, I have, I, I will say this, I have culled myself from doing this and it has, it's come as hard lessons. But a lot of us, and so I'll put myself back in there, we're just asking these SE questions as though they're supposed to work magic. And in a way, like seeing too much is too much of an opportunity to see these things that we want to call attention to so that we can ask these common SE questions as though they'll work by magic. And that's, that's not how it works. They don't just work by magic, and they don't just work by asking the question over and over again. We ask, what do you notice now? And the person says, I don't know. 
That should be feedback for us not to ask that question, at least not in that way. Again, until when we're going to ask that question, the person's going to be able to say, oh, I know what you mean. I feel this. Instead, we ask, if we ask, the same question again. By the second or third time, this person is thinking, I must be so screwed up. I can't answer this question. I mean, he's asking it to me as though I should be able to answer it, and I have no idea. Or, he must be so stupid. Why does he keep asking me this stupid question? Doesn't he see how stupid a question it is? Either way, we're not getting what we're after, which is the reason we ask those questions is to encourage people to pay attention to their experience. So on the reality side, a lot of us need a whole lot more deafness of calling attention to these incomplete self-protective responses, and we need our clients to be so much more participatory with us before we do so. Or some kind of qualification there that says, the more sophisticated you get, the less you need your clients to be willing to participate, because the more you have the verbiage and the language and the timing and the pace and the mirroring and the kind of sideways, like, oh, I bet I can get in this way. Oh, I won't try that because it didn't work a couple minutes ago, so I'll try this other thing over here in a couple minutes from now. Like, the more we get our sophistication up, the more we can guide people through these processes that they don't do on their own yet. You didn't do it. When you got in here, you were doing other cool, cool body things. You were a somatic explorer, TM. You were, like, way in. I just... Somatic Explorer trademark, just to name that. Um, you, you were in the field, but come on, you weren't doing it this way. You weren't. You learned how to do this by going through the training and doing sessions and receiving sessions and being guided by folks who kind of like could call your attention to the thing that you weren't yet noticing and encourage that sense of pendulation that would allow your procedural memory and involuntary system to kind of more or less do what it's been wanting to do. And, you know, if people were doing that, they'd have a lot more relief than they have. In the same way that you, after several years of being involved in SE, kind of like you're kind of gone into this pandemic going like, well, I'm so grateful for SE, which is true. You are, and that's great. Thank goodness, and don't we want for more people who would be able to say that? Yes, we do. What if everybody knew? I'll make fun of the TM for a moment. <laughs> what if everybody knew TM? Because I have all these pieces, right? And this is like a total aside. I have all these pieces, like what if everybody knew, and uh, somatic explorer, and, and such not. And I'm, and I'm just certain that if I don't trademark them, they'll suddenly be trademarked somewhere. So I went ahead and trademarked my own uh, therapy modality, too. It's called WNT. It's going to go in the alphabet soup of somatic therapies. It's WNT. Make note of it. It's, it's coming strong. It's coming down the pike. Witty, wittily named therapy. WNT. Wittily named therapy. TM. You learned how to do these things. You learned how to turn your attention in these ways. You learned how to let your body feel itself in a more pendulated fashion. You started experiencing more cycles of activation and deactivation. You started feeling more self-regulation. When challenges happened, you didn't feel quite so undone by them. 
that's kind of an arc that so many of us in the SE world that get to be involved in. We're trying to help our clients do those things too. And we see these golds, goals and golden moments, the self-protective responses. And we keep, some of us, keep trying to push into those way too early for most clients or for our sophistication yet. And here comes the world and says, look, you can't even try and do that so well anymore because you can't be in the same space. You can't feel the resonance with this person. And yet there's so much you can do. There's so much you can still do, including all of that, should it come to it. Now let's go over a few of them. You can take care of yourself. You can genuinely like practice being an SE practitioner. But it was always going to be hard to go to work in the trauma professions. It was always going to require that you take care of yourself. It was always going to require that you'd be in these moments where you just didn't know what to do and you had to feel resourced enough that you didn't lose your attention. Dear Amini Marshall Peller, one of my first SE influences, amazing person. Uh, Amini used to say, look, you know, for the work I do, I have to be really grounded. That's why I eat the foods that I eat. You know, got to get enough sleep so that when a person's going into some freeze dorsal vagal moment in a session, you're not so tired that the resonance that you're naturally going to pick up on anyway, naturally going to make you a little sleepy, groggy, tired too, doesn't say, oh yeah, gosh, finally, I'm overtired already, and now I'm a little tired in the session, I'm just really going to go down now. But hard to stop it, because I haven't been getting enough sleep, and I have to get enough sleep. You know, we don't necessarily, all of us, live and work on the front lines in our normal daily life, but at any time when you're in the trauma work, you, you could be working with people who their lives are, they feel like war. And if, if you're not kind of taking enough care of yourself and preparing yourself enough to keep present and paying attention and showing up, being spontaneous, um, you're just not going to be you're not going to be that much help. You're going to add your dysregulation to that person's already extreme dysregulation. It's one of the great values of being in the same room with somebody who's kind of got their SHIIT together. It's like you get to pick up on their feeling of being more regulated. To be an SE practitioner, particularly if you're really doing it, you got to take it seriously and have your own practice. You got to eat you got to sleep. You got to take modulating activities. You got to dance or, or move or laugh or do something that raises the joy factor. Gets the blood moving. You got to have some range of experience. It would just have to be that you would be like somebody who pays attention, who orients, who's like noticing things, the, you know, your cat's behavior. And enjoying it, you'd have to. If the world was dull to you, you just wouldn't be a very successful SE practitioner. 
You'd have to let yourself take in the world and, and take in cycles of things. You'd have to notice that there are moments of completion. You're cooking muffins. It only, you only want them in there for so long. There's a moment. There's a time. Maybe you put a timer, but maybe you're actually just paying attention. Do you see the matrix and how the, the oracle, she's, she's like baking cookies? She can't be disturbed at that moment of finalizing those cookies because she is focused on what is the right moment of completion on these cookies. Every sunset has its own like, okay, that's about as much color as it's going to get. That's, that's, this sunset is now turning, turning the threshold and headed toward completion. You'd need to see that for yourself in so many different ways, that your day has these moments of completion. You'd want to get like a, a little huntress or hunter for like, what, what, when is something rising? When is, when is this story got rising action to it? When is this resolving? Where was the climax? Can I see it as it's approaching? At this time, if nothing else, if not, if you can't do, if you, you don't get any contact with any of your clients, you don't, you don't get to do your work. They, they, the, the, the situation, the reality took it away from you. You could ex- still do all of those things. You could take care of yourself. You could to the extent that you have influence on them and that they will go along with you, you could encourage any quality of taking care of yourself to your family system. Extra taking care of yourself time. We don't know how long this is going to last, my friends. This is an ongoing stressor that we do not know how long this is going to last. If we're going to try and just go for two weeks, fine. And hold on, fine. And just do our wayward behaviors if we, that's what helps us get through it, fine. And if two weeks after everything backs off and everybody goes back to something like normalcy, then so be it. Good news. It wasn't that long and I didn't have to like take extra precautions to protect my sense of well-being. I could almost flail for two weeks. At some level though, there's a limit to how much that not doing extra, not being intentional to cultivate states of well-being, to encourage pendulation, to establish rest and restoration, to not take seriously the, the needs of our organisms and of our social interactions, to have more pendulation and oscillation and activation cycles and settling and settling and moving, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, great, I can stay in home, but I have to stay at home and walk around. I still have to move some. I can't become a complete vegetable. Two weeks, fine. If that's how you're going to get through, okay, right. Look, we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't, there's, there's, why would anybody at this point think that two weeks is going to be enough? Nobody would. 
It's an ongoing stressor, indeterminate length of time. We can either be thrown by it and just reactive, or from an SE practitioner perspective, we can recognize that there are things that we can and probably need to do in order to stabilize our well-being or gain access to it and reinforce um, things that, that the situation doesn't just call out, such as activity, such as social interaction, such as success of completing something, such as the sense of empowerment from taking on a challenge that you um, find reward in the effort and in the completion of. So it is something you can do. So the extent that we can, I mean, we certainly, any of us can like, you, 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 you can be voo-sounding, voo-breathing as people sometimes call it. You can be making a vibration in your chest cavity and letting your viscera feel that quality of vibration periodically. It's something you can do. And to the extent that you have influence over your family system to try things that they may not have been into doing beforehand, and to the extent that you can introduce it without turning them off from it, just in the fact that you're going to insist that they do this thing. Oh, mom. It's like, to the extent that you can, the right amount of contact, that's a good place to both practice how can I introduce things to people who might not be quite so interested in my weird thing? Weird things. Let's go to bed at a set time. Let's have a set amount of screen time. Let's have less screen time at the end of the night. Let's have less light at the end of the night so that our pituitary gland will be making melatonin so that we can go to sleep rather than just feel like we're always strung out and waking up in the morning as though we didn't really get any sleep. And let's not check the news maybe the moment we wake up so that we have at least a few minutes to relate to reality without the major reality imposing upon the rest of our day from the very start. Like, could there not be things like that that could be done at least privately, if not socially inside of your system? Now, you've also got a lot of friends. You've got a lot of friends out there who either you haven't been in contact with for years or you're in regular contact with, and they kind of know what you do. They kind of know something about SE, but they, they probably don't know much. And maybe at the beginning, there were some of them that you tried to do sessions with and kind of do some dual relationship because you could see that they had some gastrointestinal issues and maybe you thought that SE would help until you found out that those gastrointestinal issues described that they were having a syndromal condition and this is actually a long-going thing and you had to wait till advanced to get to know how to work with that or deal with that in the first place and that it's not going to be very easy to do with a dual relationship in the second place. And then you were like, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't do this anyway. And so you haven't really broached SE with them again. And maybe you don't have, and you don't perhaps really, a complete package. Let's do this, 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 and it's all going to help make this terrible reality that's overarching in your life feel better. 
particularly not with your friends. And yet, you know, there, there's like a special thing happening right now where you get a little extra license to contact people, encourage them their well-being, encourage them to stay sane, encourage them to take a walk. And if you wanted to, you could share a little something. You could share something about like, hey, you know, just, just as a thought, I thought I'd share. From an SE perspective, we can see that an extended time in the stress response is hard on the heart and the lungs and, and our shoulders and just our musculature starts to become tense from the sense of being on guard and on the ready all the time. So I don't know how, you're, how it would be best for you, but something that we're talking about in the SE world is to make sure that at least at some point during the day, we do something intentionally that tells us that we're in a safer context than the rest of what's going on. And then when we establish that, we do at least a little moment of letting our body feel that slightly safer situation. So that while even if it's true that the dangers are going to still be there and that they're going to continue for an unknown period of time, and that their consequences are yet still unknown, and that even at some moment right now, it's horrific. If it's at some point during the day, not as hard as that, that that's a moment that we should let our bodies notice a different feeling than what all of that hardship reproduces of its own. So if we take a a bath, if we have that luxury, we should kind of like let ourselves like really feel the bath. If we take off our shoes and massage our feet, we should kind of like take a moment to just be like, oh my gosh. It's like, if we, you know, bake some muffins, you know, it's like, I don't know, maybe you've had better muffins, but have you ever, have you ever had this muffin? Can you get into this muffin? Now, with your clients, there is no shortage of things that you can do. You don't have to be in a scarcity mentality. I don't know SE. I don't know how to do SE online. I don't know how to do SE on the phone. You don't have to be in a scarcity mentality of like, oh, this isn't what I was trained for. One of the central things that you have been being trained for is adaptation. One of the central themes that you're looking for in a particularly a more organic style of doing SE where you are relating to the client at their particular level of participation and involvement, and you're finding the appropriate titrations for them to relate to their experiences at. And you're not just walking around saying, everybody, you should all do three voos. And on the third voo, it should have like an ah, arg sound. So it's like voo, 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 arg, voo, arg, voo, arg. Now feel. I mean, if if it was like that, we could just have the run away from the tiger modality. We just set everybody up and say, okay, now there's a tiger chasing you. There's a tiger chasing you. You should run from that tiger. You should run to that tree and you should get away. We just reproduce the Nancy session. And we don't do that. 
We don't do that because we realize that we're trying to help people affect their relationship with their organism. And their organism has a certain kind of relationship with how much it's able to feel for itself, how threatened it feels by itself. And we quite literally look for the titrations where people are successful with their experience of paying attention to themselves, particularly in that kind of like curious, permissive, anticipatory state of allowing things to happen and being curious of what happens next and seeing that what happens next is something that changes rather than something that stays the same, which of course for so many folks, when we first start meeting with them, it does stay the same because their system isn't pendulating. And that's why we would definitely notice that it doesn't change. We're going to pull your attention away from that and help other things happen so it will change. All to say, like, we try to relate to each person where they're at. Well, okay. Um, you can still do that. It's going to be different. It's not always going to be like, oh, let your leg feel that shaking. Could be, could include that. I'm not going to say it doesn't include completing of self-protective responses, but I am going to say that in this context, in this situation, you have been learning lots and lots and lots of skills about adaptation, of how do I help this person relate to themselves? And some of you were going to go do that somewhere in some far-off place where you were never going to have a cozy room with nice things to look at on the wall. You were going to be in some, some field somewhere or some barn somewhere or the edge of some flood somewhere. And they were going to, it was going to be a refugee camp. Or, and, and some of you were going to be in some public school setting where you, you didn't get but five minutes with kids. And some of you were going to have a client who came in and just didn't say three words for the whole hour. All of us, we're going to have to do some kind of learning how to adapt the, the possibilities and the request of how do I help this person be with their experience? How do I help them, quote, have a somatic experience? And, and in this in this context, in this situation, you're, you're, you have an interesting test. It's not even the hardest test on how to adapt. I mean, if you have access to things like Zoom and Skype, if you've got a good phone connection, just a phone connection, just talking to each other, you and your client, just having a conversation, I mean, you got, you got so much to work with. And yes, to adapt, but so much to work with. I remember very distinctly, very, because he makes an impression. Uh, Raja Selvman, I was in uh, just a, um, a very good class with him 16 years ago in Marin and 2014, I don't know, something like that, 16 years ago, 15 years ago. And 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 Raj is talking about resonance, very very fabulous 
talk about resonance, and somebody says something about resonance, about its limitations or its difficulty at a distance or whatnot, and Raja says, well, why is it that I feel these things and can appreciate my uh, the person I'm talking with and their feeling state inside of my experience? How is it that I can do that when I'm on the phone with them when they're calling from Maui? Now, um, I'm assuming that he that he was telling the story of something that happens or happened. He's on the phone with somebody who's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, as far away as you can physically be on the planet from another land source, other than the other islands right around. But the Hawaiian Islands is far out there in the middle of the Pacific, but a phone line. And I mean, think about it psychobiologically. The sound of a person's voice, the pace of their breathing, the tonality, the rise and fall of their prosody or lack thereof, your ability to tune in and listen to those things, you needed to learn how to do that anyway. If you were in session inside the room and you could see their whole frame and their foot was moving and you weren't listening to their tone of voice and their pacing and their prosody or lack thereof, they were never going to follow your ask, feel your foot and how it wants to move like that. You needed both of those things. You needed to be listening in that kind of way that you appreciate, like, you know, what's going on? How am I feeling? How are they feeling? How's our flow? Am I talking the whole time? Is she talking the whole time? Is she interruptible here? Can I redirect her attention here? Is that going to be a friction that we don't get past? Is that something I can smooth out and mitigate so it's easier to get past it? Well, are we, are, is she talking slower? Should I be talking slower? Wow, is there, is there like emotion in that trill? Like, am I feeling inside of myself some sense of emotion? Is that emotion that I'm feeling mine or is it theirs? Is it hers? I mean, you know, I, I lay it out as a cognitive act there, and sometimes it's helpful to keep in mind some of those questions, but it's more, um, the gift of listening over time, you're just going to give it to yourself. You're going to pay attention. And the phone, actually, it's just, it's a perfect way to cultivate that quality of attention. You don't hold a phone with your hand. You know, if you do, rest your elbow against a desk or a table or something so that you're not sitting there with extra tension in your shoulder. But ideally, you know, you have some kind of like, headphone kind of thing, or a speakerphone. I used to talk to my therapist, and she was always on speakerphone. I used to have PTSD pretty bad. When I first started, I would call her from payphones, do our session. Um, and a new payphone every time. I was nervous about where I, where I was. So I'd always be moving. I'd call her on a payphone. And you know what? She totally paid attention. She totally listened. I could tell on the payphone that she was on a speakerphone. And I can tell you that I think it bothered me. It felt like there was a little too much distance and uh, a little bit of like the sense of calling the moon almost feeling, especially that's like 16 years ago. At the same time, she paid attention. I called, I called twice a week for, for a year. Um, 
She paid attention. She reflected. Her feedback was accurate. When I'd say something that that had significance, she'd say, oh, wow, huh. She, she didn't just go silent. She'd accompany me at a distance, at a really far distance, at a distance in my hiding. And she would still accompany me, help me to come out of that hiding. A lot of running and SE sessions helped me with that too, but nevertheless, major, major help. The phone, even on speakerphone, more intimate, some kind of earbuds, earbuds, headphones with a little microphone, more intimate. And that, that does help. It helps you and your feedback to be able to like, hmm, hmm. Or even as things go quiet and you've established the contract, hey, when we're on the phone socially, we don't normally let pauses happen on the phone or it's a signal that we need to get off the phone. But let's make a contract here that says, this isn't the same thing as that. Now, it's not the same thing as though we were in my office, but it's also not the same thing as a social phone call. If there's a moment or a time where we don't have anything to say or we're just tracking or you're just looking out the window, we don't have to fill in what you're seeing. We don't have to always name what you're feeling, nor do we have to kind of fill in the open space. Uh, we can kind of like let things be generative and see what happens. Now, that's not an invitation for you to go silent. It might be an invitation for you not to fill in with a lot of verbiage. And you don't want to just make noises over and over, say, oh, I'm still here. See, I'm still here. But like you would do in your office with somebody in freeze, you wouldn't want to go completely silent. You wouldn't want to go completely silent when somebody had a whole lot to say either. You can just sit there and look at them. They're just talking, 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 going, 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 and just talking, talking, talking. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to just be like staring at them, like thinking to yourself, when am I going to be able to do SE with this person? They're just talking the whole time. I'm going to have to tell them to stop. Oh, stop. I need you to stop here. And so that we'll feel your feet on the ground. No, it's like, really? That's abrupt. It's terribly abrupt. It, it, it falters for a reason because it's, it's too abrupt. You, you wouldn't want to go silent in any of those situations. When the person's in freeze, you want to move your chair a little bit every once in a while, have it make a little creaking sound. And not on any kind of pattern, but you'd want to move your leg and slide it over your other leg so your pant leg made a little sound. You'd want to make little adjustments or, mm-hmm, yeah, little sounds that just kind of pace out the environment to say, there's nothing happening out here that you have to pay attention to. If there was, I wouldn't be moving at ease like this. I'd be, I'd be up in arms. Uh, there'd be something to worry about. I'd be telling you, there's nothing to worry about. You can sit there in that freeze state as long as you need. And, and we're going to be paying attention to when that starts to change. And out here, I'm just going to signal every once in a while that nothing bad is happening out here. And same with somebody talking, talking, talking. You want to be like, huh, wow, really? So then what happened? I mean, they're not going to let you talk, but you don't want to be empty. You want to have some quality of stepping in so that there's a sense of back and forth. Wow, so then, wow, tell me next. I mean, they were going to tell you anyway. 
but they might as well tell you with you asking, encouraging them so that eventually you could kind of classic hypnosis theory there. You could pace, 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 lead. You could, wow, really? Huh? Well, then what happened? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Oh, gosh. He was crazy, isn't he? Oh, goodness. And what happened next? Oh, he did? Oh, my gosh. And what'd you do? Oh, you did? Oh, wow. Tell me more about that. What, what'd you do there? That'd be like executing the formula, which is in the SE Reflections podcast, episode number something, something, 50, something, six, maybe the formula. So look, on the phone with a headphone and ear and everything, you can do that. You can make little sounds of accompaniment. Um, that can be just as real in its own way as though you were in the room with the person. It can provide a part of the context that allows and gives permission for a person to be inside of their somatic experience. And when I say that, I don't just mean their felt sense physical channel, sensation channel of Cybam. I mean like the totality of their experience. So, okay, the context has taken away one of your major skill sets, being in the room with people, sharing your self-regulation, feeling them, picking up on the nuances, guiding their attention to other things. In the current situation, if you're still doing client work, you're on the phone or in, um, maybe you're over email too, you're on the phone, you're on the video, the context is different. It's important to name out that the context is different. Doesn't mean that we're not going to be like doing the exactly the same thing, but it does mean that the context is not exactly the same, and we shouldn't assume it. We shouldn't assume that this session is the same thing as an in-person session, and there's still so much you can do. Now, in these kind of situations, what I think, this is just me now, I think what's most helpful is passing along some information and then practicing intentional exercises to cultivate various different psychobiological states. Now, that's not what I prefer to do in terms of therapy. I prefer to use those exercises, the voo sound, the push hands, the smoothie rings or some kind of like activating ideally vibratory, rhythmic, coordinated kind of request on the body, balancing stuff, standing up and down and sitting back down again, looking at each other's faces, adjusting our facial expression, pulling back into ourselves, all of that, all of the provocations that let's try this little wacky experiment. I really articulate and want for those at my work and in yours and just an ideal in SE in general to, to take those on as experiments that's one of Peter Levine's major lines it's like I wonder if you'd be willing to try this wacky little experiment with me and it's it's for gathering information and it's for stimulating the system the autonomic nervous system in certain kinds of ways call the attention to things, the VU sound, so many reasons for the VU that you do. But one of them is that it's this valuable 
introductory practice, I mean, it's got other reasons than just that, but it's like a valuable introductory practice of this is the experience of tracking something. We're going to do something. It's going to have some kind of impact or influence on what your body does. And we're going to watch that impact, that influence change in some way. You're going to make the sound. You're going to feel a little vibration while making the sound. After making the sound, I don't know what, but somebody's going to say, oh, I feel like some kind of like echo of the vibration. And now we have something to watch, something to track. Classic little line. Like when you're watching a bird fly across the sky, you don't tell the bird which way to go. You don't say, oh, you should land right there. You just, you're going to just track the bird as it flies across the sky. Like, where's it going? Oh, what's that vibration or the echo of that vibration doing? Does it stay the same? Does it stay exactly the same vibration, the same echo of the vibration? Or does it increase in some way? Or does it decrease in some way? Does it change to something else? And the Vu sound gives you a little package for tracking something. And it teaches people how to like pay attention to something and then be participatory and permissive with when that changes, let's feel that and watch and see what happens next. Now, all of those provocations that kind of do things like that, um, they can be used as exercises. They can be used as intentional practices of things to do to try to more or less cultivate certain kinds of things. Orientation. It's trying to stimulate the ventral vagal complex. It's trying to use the orientation architecture, Stephen Hoskinson calls it, like the social engagement system, the sternocleidomastoid muscles and the eyes, the muscles around the eyes and the forehead and turning the head and letting the eyes move inside the eye sockets. All a psychobiological message. Oh, I must not be running for my life right now. If I was running for my life, I'd be dominated by the sympathetic system and my head, neck, and eyes would all be locked together as I focused on the danger and the direction of safety and the nuance of like the shapes in the clouds, they would literally be a who cares. So the, the request, the invitation to orientation, it's, it, it's an experiment and it's also used um, as a kind of like, oh yeah, let's remind your system of what it would want to do. And that's part of the key here is that all of those kinds of things, um, there's a certain amount of them that can be done, a certain titration that for just about everybody, they represent a exercise that helps to affect some psychobiological purpose. The VU sound, again, so many reasons for the VU that you do, but one of them is that there's this vibratory element on the vagus, on the 10th cranial nerve going down the posterior backside of the body cavity, the anterior front side of the spine coming down the back of the inner body below through the diaphragm and in below the diaphragm investing in just like every different direction around the viscera. And what do we know about the stress response? Well, you know, you, you get stressed and you think less and you also digest poorly. Your, your belly tightens up. Peristalsis starts to like happen less, not happen at all, or it gets wacky. I mean, I've, I don't, you don't need to know that, but I have had such diarrhea. It's been amazing. You know, and it's like, I can't be the only one. I literally can't be the only one. So, you know, I'm doing everything I can to take care of my diet and whatnot and my stress response. And I'm 
doing the voo sound periodically. A little vibration to say to the viscera, hey, look, it doesn't have to be quite so wacky down there. But it, it, it couldn't be too much of the voo. It'd be too stimulating. Uh, could be a little bit too less. Could be. No big deal. But there's some level of that that it's like, it's, it's nice. It's, it's, it's invigorating in some way. It's positive in some way. And that's the thing, is that all of the different things that we do as provocations, can some of them be nice? Can some of them be invigorating? Can some of them be pleasing? Can some of them be settling? And we just, we have like an entire collection of those kinds of things. And so now, here, um, I'll say this. At sereflections.com, for SE students and practitioners and other kin, uh, I have a program there. A lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of people have really valuable offers right now. I would say, hey, just take advantage of anything that suits you. One offer that I have is at sereflections.com. Um, on the offerings page or on the homepage, you can find a link to a project for SEPs in the time of COVID-19. And one of the things I've been doing in that project is meeting with practitioners on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And, and I'm just guiding us as a group through some of these kinds of things, the VU sound, pushing on things, the... Um, so proxies for s stimulating the sympathetic system, invigorating and giving some, some motor expression to frustration and uh, aggression, a lot of it unrequited at this point, nothing to fight against other than to keep yourself safe. Um, we've been doing rest and restoration ones. Got one coming up this next Wednesday. We're going to focus on the face, which is not getting nearly enough um, time for spontaneous interaction these days as we spend so much time at physical distance alone. So going to uh, offer that you know about that where I'll review these kinds of things. And I'll say like, you don't even need that. You, you need your curiosity and enthusiasm for adaptation. And perhaps you need a little reminder. For some of you, maybe you need a little reminder. There are lots of things that you can do that don't reach for the gold of completing incomplete self-protective responses in SE sessions. There are a ton of felt sense awareness behaviors and activities that we could call exercises at this moment that are quite literally intended. And if you find the right titration, you invoke a smaller titration to start with to help you find it. To find the right titration, they are, they kind of, for lack of a better word, they prove a point. 
You know, like, let me have you brace against the air here. Step away, like lean forward in your chair, hold everything super, super, super tight. Like your muscles, your hands, your arms, your shoulders, your chest. You're going to brace your elbows against the side of your chest. Your neck is going to get really tight. Your teeth are going to get so tight. I can barely talk to you while I'm expressing it. And then all of a sudden on the count of three, three, two, three, two, 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 one. We're going to release back into the back of the chair and we're just going to push ourselves and flop into the chair and let all of that go all at once. Okay, now we're just going to feel for three seconds. Two. One. And we're not going to, this isn't going to change the world. It's not going to solve all your problems. Just for one moment, we were just giving your body the opportunity to notice something else than what's been going on inside of it based on the ambient noise in the world around you. So after having done that little bracy, intentional release thing, which is just one simple, almost crass little thing to describe here, what do you notice now? Well, I feel tingling in my legs as an example. Just one little thing. Another uh, piece that we can do for our clients, it's true, is that we can meet them where they're at right now. Some folks want to share more. Some folks want to share less. You, I would say, uh, quickly, I'd hasten to say, you don't necessarily want or have the responsibility to become the check-in-with-me-every-hour accompaniment person. Now, you might have that relationship with a client or two, but the context probably shouldn't change too much of your professional relationship. You don't necessarily need to become friends during this time. And they don't need to know too much about how things are going for you. But if ever there was a time to share of yourself in the service of the client, um, talk to several practitioners that have incorporated like daily text mail text message check-ins when normally they don't do that kind of thing. Um, I've definitely talked with folks that, that as they uh, share with me, they are sharing that they are being somewhat more forthcoming with their clients about their own personal experiences. They're going through this too, how it's not easy and it's challenging. And I think that that is a real value. If you are in a guidance role a therapeutic role with one of your clients and the typical thing for you is to never say anything about your personhood. I mean, I, I commend you for holding the line on that and and I, I fear for those who kind of overshare. And at the same time, this, this is a little window like to say like, you know, the shared humanity of this moment is part of the psychosocial accompaniment that gives people, I'm not in this alone kind of feeling. And of course, so many people just on a daily basis before this felt like they were on their own. So uh, being told to stay at home just puts that burden on some folks all the more. I'll, I'll go ahead and share. Like I, I had a lovely interview with Dr. Robert Scare, Bob Scare, lovely human being who wrote The Trauma Spectrum and The Body Bears the Burden, amongst other books. And that interview is at sereflections.com. And um, 
you look in the search box, look for trauma spectrum or Dr. Robert Scare. In any case, uh, during the interview, we had a moment where I think the cameras were off at this moment. And I said, you know, one of the things I, I most appreciate about you, uh, Bob, is that you, you're kind of like forthcoming about your personal experience. And he does that. He does that in his books a little bit. He's shared his own stuff. And one of the notes about him as a, as a doctor, a neuro, neurologist, he ran this pain clinic in Boulder, Colorado for 30 years. And he kind of had his perspective and the classic perspective on brain injury after accidents, particularly small accidents and such, because he had this pain clinic where he was seeing people with chronic pain who had been in remarkably small automobile accidents, but their lives had unraveled afterwards. And he was kind of like inside the literature and inside the tradition of what that meant in terms of brain injury and whatnot, the kind of standard practice belief kind of thing. And when he heard about SE and Peter Levine, he didn't send his clients, his patients, to go get treatment. He sent himself. And he says that publicly. And he, he got a lot of relief from it himself. And in experiencing that relief, investigated all of the literature and science behind SE and wrote those wonderful books that we can lean upon so helpfully. Um, in this interview, I said, well, you know, I just... Uh, or, along this interview time, I said, Bob, it's, I appreciate so much how human you are about this, and you don't keep yourself just in the expert role. You are an expert, but you don't keep yourself just in the expert role, too aloof for anybody to have any kind of like relationship with you. And he said, you know, I've always just done that. I've always recognized that if I, if I shared enough, not I don't want to overshare, but I shared enough of my experience with my clients they my patients they would they would know that they weren't alone i think almost word for word that's what he said that they would know that they weren't alone maybe as alone or something like that it it's so true this is a moment not that you want to call your clients and oh you know i just really want you to know that if you're having a hard time huh me too i can't even go to my office and see clients like i thought i was going to be able to you don't you don't have to do that um, but when they ask, how are you doing? You don't have to unload how, you know, you've been losing it in the garage. Um, by the way, if you, if you are, if you have been like, you're not alone. Um, at the same time, you, you don't have to, you don't have to pretend like you are the mountain. In fact, probably better in terms of this last thing that I'll name here probably better in terms of your accompaniment and guidance for you to share not just that things uh, are going along okay, but a bit about how things are for you, particularly psychophysiologically. Tense, tired, achy, scared, um, short-tempered, anxious, preoccupied, unable to concentrate, any of these that you may need to name, and then to share what you're doing about it. That, you know, that, that's part of what I'm experiencing. And I'm also aware, naturally, that we're in this, like, really turbulent time, these really troubled times that, that, that anybody 
should be feeling unsettled by. And I am too. And so knowing that we're in that time and that I'm feeling this unsettled and that these things happen and I, I feel these waves of frustration and I end up losing it when I wouldn't normally do, then I look for, and now you could share what you might be doing to relate to those things. I look for the opportunity when I can repair with my partner after I've been too short, but not to do it right away as though it's, it's not something I've thought about. I give it some time and I actually think about it. And then I come back and I'm like, you know, look, that was really just not the right way to communicate. And I feel really um, embarrassed and ashamed about having said that that way. Or, wow, you know, I realize I've been like staying up at night reading the news and then I'm like wondering why I'm so anxious when I wake up in the morning and I decided that, you know, by 7 p.m. I'd stop uh, paying attention to the news for 16 hours or 12 hours or whatever it's going to be and I'd be able to pick it up the next day without too much worried that I was missing the thing that was going to make the difference. And then that's, that's this last point, that... At this time, where people don't have a previously established practice to support their well-being, and even those who have dabbled in it in the past um, but haven't uh, been maintaining that or don't have it like you, a profession that essentially says, hey, part of the profession is that you don't drink too much and you go to sleep and you wake up ready to, ready to be of service. Uh, not like perhaps perhaps you don't need to wake up ready to save the world every day, but definitely like you're taking care that you could have time and attention for others because you also give your own experience time and attention. Um, a lot of people right now need that message that it's 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 not. Um, It's not a time to just let yourself hang out in the sense of let your impulses do whatever they want to do, let your attention be drawn to whatever it's attracted to, um, follow your uh, follow your impulses just wherever they want to go. Well, you know, my impulse right now is to just sit on the couch and smoke a bunch of legal weed and disappear. And no, no, not right, not appropriate. For somebody, maybe that's how they're going to do it and get through whatever, but not, not, not a good idea. And particularly not for anybody who's being of help, anybody who has a family, et cetera, et cetera. No, that's a time when the message of self-care and self-improvement without too much pressure and um, relating to our physicality and our psychobiology needs to be reinvested in. Reinvested in, not maybe perhaps in a militaristic or arduous way, as though we had gone to some kind of yoga boot camp kind of thing and we're just going to like do yoga for the next eight hours so we can ground and center ourselves. But definitely, definitely an intentional, almost sensory diet kind of perspective, wherein on the hour, every hour, there's a little alarm go off, and we get up and move in six different directions. We pick up a weighted object, and we put it on our lap, and we roll it around so we can feel the 
sense of proprioceptive influence and and our body in different places where we every period of time or every once in a while or on a regular basis through the day we make a little vibration in our chest cavity and in our viscera to say like hey look um, it doesn't all have to become tense or empty and to the extent that you have guidance and influence with people right now you might be looking for how to promote intentional self-care intentional uh okay you're taking a walk super let's let's get all of that let's get all the goods out of that that we can because you do you want to take a walk you're in your apartment hour on end and that's what you need and should be doing that's great thank you for your contribution to helping everybody get through this better by not being an extra vector out in the world so good you're staying home and yes it's so true you need a walk and if they'll let you walk you want to take a walk. Now, when you're walking, you know, do, do you have to suddenly become like a speed walker and catch up on the years of not having been walking? Or do you need on this walk to enjoy this walk pretty much and get as much out of it as you kind of can? It's cold outside, bundle up more so that you're in that much more warmth and that much more comfortable walking. It's not that cold, whatever. You can move comfortably. You should move comfortably when you get home as much as you can. Take in the feeling of having gone out. In a way, um, cherish it all. Okay, one last There's a, uh, I'll, I'll promote a website. It's called Get Your S-H-I-T Together. Get Your S-H-I-T Together dot com or dot org. You're going to find it if you type that in. And that is a website um, that just has like a, a very clear checklist of things to do in preparation for uh, your end, your, your leaving of this world. And it was started some time ago by a woman who lost, I think, her partner. And in doing so, she was left with all of the problems in business around um, not having a will and not having um, medical direction and all that kind of stuff worked out previous. Now, it's a sobering thing. And it's not something that's easy to kind of like get our minds around. But there is essentially uh, that, well, there is in reality an illness that is happening in the world, a pandemic, that any of us, granted some of us are kind of like doing absolute physical distance and that started long enough ago that we've passed a certain window, two weeks or so, that we're like, okay, look, I don't have it as long as I don't come into contact with anybody else, anything else that does happen, and I'll make sure I don't. Um, then there's a chance that I go through this world without ever having to get this. But that could require all kinds of luck, chance, opportunity, and, you know, psychosocial, social, economic, like, support, et cetera, et cetera. In the main, just about all of us are living in some kind of like, well, there is a real chance that I might get this thing. I mean... 
Hopefully not. I really, really do. Hopefully not. But there's no reason for any of us to assume that that's impossible unless we're at just the right location. In which case, any of us could get this thing and any of us could have a harder time with it than, than, we, would, than, than we would want. And it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not going to give us a whole lot of opportunity to get our SHIT together. So if you personally haven't worked out your will, amongst other things like that, then for your own sense of well-being inside of all this, as like I have done, I've related to reality and I've kind of done the things that I can do, one of the things that you might do is get on that website and get their checklist and kind of just see what, what on here is important to me. And that's not the first thing that I would ask you to talk to your clients about. But action is the antidote for despair, as Joan Baez said. And that is a step of action when your life is threatened that you'd rather have done than not. And the people in your life would rather that you had done that than not. And in any case, that website's been going on for a long time, uh, long before this happened, because really, like, that's a, something that all of us should, uh, a certain age of life, all of us should work out anyway before the fact. Because you never know how long you get to be here. We none of us know. And that's why, that's so much why, we want to cherish the experience as we go along. I'm cherishing you, fine folk out there. I know that some of you are really, really, if you think about it, you're in a safe situation, safe enough at least, and I'm so glad for that. And some of some folks that won't be listening to this, I, ideally they, their kind of attention is focused elsewhere and hopefully they're getting some support as they go. Um, I hope that that, goes as well as they can for them. I am getting to a point where I feel safe enough, and that's feeling better. Along the way, it's going to be hard, but it ain't going to last forever. So we got to keep it together. It won't last forever, don't you know? You got to keep it together. Oh, yo. It won't last forever. Don't you know? You got to keep it together. Oh, yo. I'm wishing you all the best out there. Be talking again to you soon, I hope. Okay. Be well. Take real good care. Uh, keep your distance. Wash your hands. It matters right now. Bye-bye for now.
Sponsored by River Minutes. Oh, yeah. RiverMinutes.com. You need a moment by the river. RiverMinutes.com.